reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1. It's from Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses eight, verse 18 through 25. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Doctors can be very insensitive at times when it comes to giving you the bad news about your blood pressure, about your diagnosis. And they know this. They're as nervous as you are probably about talking to you about your difficulties. But there are ways that doctors have learned to break the news more gently. Uh, and one is to explain to you the cure before they even talk to you about what you're facing. The, the, the doctor could say, science has found a cure for one of the most terrible diseases known to mankind, and you're going to get to use that cure. <laughs> now, that's, that's the nicest way to, to lay it out there, that you're in deep trouble, but there's a cure, and you're going to be all right because we know what to do about this. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in in Romans chapter 1 today. Paul has spent the, the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1, what has he been doing? Rehearsing the gospel, his motivations to bring the gospel, his joy at bringing the gospel, his excitement to bring the gospel to the church and to all the different kinds of people in the church and all of their friends, he spent the first half of Romans chapter 1 giving the cure. And now he gets to the disease. He gets to what is troubling and ailing the Gentile, in this case the Gentile world is who he is focused on, those that are outside of the people of Israel, and the position that they find themselves in. That means he's talking about us. It's easy to read a text like I just read and think, yeah, yeah those people out there, they're in trouble, aren't they? Boy, they're in, in, in trouble. No, this is like that Paul Washer sermon that you saw on YouTube. He's talking about you. 
This is, this is our identity that's being marred. These are our minds that are becoming more and more futile. So he's talking about us. He's talking about our friends. He's talking about our, our family. And, he's been, and we're going to talk about this and about the cure today. The gospel is the cure for the greatest threat to humanity. Proud unbelief. Unrepentant sin. There was a time when I was growing up when everybody was saying that education was the problem. That if we could just learn more and teach more and make sure that everyone had the information that they need to live a good life, that they would do it. And so what happened? We we did improve our school systems, and then we put all of human knowledge in something the size of a cell phone. And I don't think things have gotten better. I don't know about you. There's a lot of things that have gotten better since I was growing up, but people haven't gotten a lot better. If, 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 if anything, it's worse because I know about it, because of Facebook. I know how judgmental you are. I don't have to guess. Most pastors back in the old days, they would preach and they weren't sure about what their, converse, their, you know, their congregation was thinking about or talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what you ate last night. You took pictures of it. Put it on Instagram. The gospel is the cure for what ails us. And we don't have to guess about whether this applies to us because sin infects our minds. It infects our worship. It infects our homes, even into the bedroom. The institutions of education, religion, and the home have been corrupted by the cancer of unrepentant, proud sin. And many of those folks that we see out there and interact with on a daily basis, they're not sorry. They're not sorry at all for their sin. Paul wanted his friends in Rome to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the right standing of Jesus could be given not only to them, but to their friends. And, and, and that they could be rescued from the wrath of God that comes upon sin and sinners. All who trust in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, could be healed of the diseased mind, the diseased worship, the diseased relationships. Knowing how upsetting it could be to hear how bad the prognosis is, he first gives the gospel, as we've heard for five sermons so far, the holy cure and the only cure that once and for all rescues sinners from the eternal death penalty for sin. Let's look back at the text today. There's these three categories that I've brought up three times already. The diseased mind, diseased worship, and diseased relationships. The first place you see this is in verses 18 through 20. That God has revealed himself to the nations, to the world, even down to his 
invisible attributes, things you can't ordinarily perceive, had been revealed in creation, and yet they can't see it. I'm sure someone else has said this before, but I, I, I've been in the in pastorate for 12 years before I came here, and I had a saying, and the saying was, sin makes you stupid. And what I meant when I said that was, is I had friends of mine, friends that I thought were more mature than I was in some ways, who suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, we're walking away from Jesus into lives that made them lose their marriages, lose their jobs, lose their relationship with the local church, get excommunicated, lose their ordination, and so on and so forth. And as I would see them walking through that great one loss after the other, I knew they were smart people. I knew in many ways they were smarter than I was. Why in the world, after facing consequence after consequence after consequence, would they keep walking forward into these deep, nasty consequences of their sin? It's because sin makes you stupid. You know, it's, it's just like when we get angry. Now, not all sin, not, anger, not all anger is sin, but the kind of anger I'm about to talk about is. When we get angry to a point to where everything just kind of turns red and we don't even think about what we're about to say next and it just sort of blurts out and, and, and it's just all coming out all at once and all of a sudden we're yelling at the person we're angry with, okay? We frequently say things during those moments that don't make a lot of sense, that don't add up, that aren't logical, that aren't rational. And we know this because we've done this. Or maybe you've just seen your children do it. <laughs> Kids, I'm just joking. I'm talking about your mom and dad here. Why? Because sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you say and do things that you just wouldn't do if you were thinking about it. But when you start, when sin begins to take over and gets its grip around our throat, we start saying and doing things that, that, that don't make any sense to anybody, even ourselves, if we would admit it. A diseased mind and the inability to think about God's law and God's person is a symptom of the terminal illness of sin. And it's a sign of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. And we're going to talk more about this next week. The next thing we see here is diseased worship. Starting at verse 21 through 23, they knew God, but they didn't honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were foolish, foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds. Now you've got idols is what you're looking at here. When we talk about instead of worshiping God, we worship images of mortal men and birds. We're, not, we're now talking about idolatry. So diseased worship is the second symptom of a mind that's being conquered by sin. So what is an idol, though? Is it just something made out of wood and stone and gold? Well, that, that thing made of wood and stone and gold represents something. People that worship other gods like that, they know that their god is not a rock or a, a, a globe of the earth. They know that. It represents what they worship. It's a, it's a visual representation. So what is that thing behind that thing? Well, it's anything that's more important to you than God. That's what an idol is. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whenever I look at you and say in my heart of hearts, if I had your life, if I had that car, if I had that whatever it is, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe a relationship like that. But one of the best ways to describe it is worship. It's worship. And diseased worship is one of the symptoms that Paul points out here in the text that's happening in the lives of those who are not refusing to worship God and living lives of proud disobedience. Finally, verse 24 through 25 you see diseased relationships. Fundamentally, it's marriage that is diseased here. It's the third sign of God's wrath falling on those who refuse to repent of their sin. And he's speaking not necessarily specifically, but in some cases specifically, he is speaking of the whole of the Roman culture here. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Two points here. He describes this sinful disease of the family in terms of worship. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. There comes a point when you worship yourself particularly, when you become very narcissistic and you 
elevate yourself to such a high point that in the end you'll only be satisfied in a relationship with someone who's a lot like you. And people will seek intimate relationships with people who are the same gender or something like that. And one reason behind that is they have turned inward, that they are so in love with themselves that the highest form of intimacy they can imagine is to be intimate with someone who looks just like them, anatomically speaking. We'll talk more about this next week, but what we're immediately seeing is that diseased relationships that affect marriage, that affect our intimacy one with another, are deeply connected to a worship problem. And it immediately folds back over upon us. The good news is that Jesus Christ promised to rescue us from these ugly, debilitating effects of sin. More importantly, He promises to rescue us from the wrath of God, which is the just response of a holy God to those who refuse His gospel cure. Here's the good news I want to leave you with today. Looking at verse 20, it's not that God just has the cure, but He's powerful enough to get it to us. Verse 20, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. We worship a powerful God who's not up there in heaven wondering how he's going to get the good news out there and what is going to... He's powerful and strong and he's not limited by us. The good news is that God just doesn't have the cure. He's powerful enough to, to get it to you, to me, during our deepest, darkest times of need. What good would it do if you were ill with some terrible disease and over somewhere in another country they had the cure, but they couldn't get to you and you couldn't get to them? You're dead. God has the power. Verse, seven, verse 15 through 17, it's not that God just has the cure and has the power, but He delights to give it to us. He delights to give it to us. Verse 15, for, says, I'm not, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Gentile. God delights to give to us, to his people, the cure. What good would it do if someone had the cure to the greatest disease that we've ever faced and they said, oh, sorry, it's not for white people. It's not for people like you. 
so sorry. It's for other people. That wouldn't do us any good. It's not just that God has the cure. The good news is it's free. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Through whom the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That it's a it's it's a gracious thing. It's God's kind, benevolent, loving gift to us. And then there's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can give him in exchange for the cure that he has for us. It comes to us by his grace or not at all. You try to give an exchange, you try offering God. Remember the story of the magician in the book of Acts, Simon the sorcerer, we call him in history. And he saw the apostles laying hands on folks. They're getting healed. People are speaking in tongues. It's crazy. And he's looking and he gets in on the act and he says, hey, wait a minute, guys. I think I've got a way we can franchise this. You and me, we can come into a business proposition where I give you some upfront money. You give me the power to do what you do and then we'll be in business. That's, Peter had some very strong words to say to him. The text goes light on what Peter said. I won't get into it. It's a little spicy though. The fact is, is that you don't do those kinds of deals with God. He can't be bought. He, his grace, his mercy, his kindness can't be Earned. And to think that you're going to form some kind of deal with God ends it right there. It's not just that God has the cure, but he, we're the ones that he gives it to. It's free, and it also empowers us to live out then our justification, God's gift of Christ's righteousness Verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's a lot of Christian books in the Christian bookstores, and a lot of them will tell you that they've got the way for you to live the powerful Christian life. That, that Christian, you've struggled to do the right thing, you, 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 you've tried, you keep failing, and this book says, I've got what's going to fix it for you. Some of those books are right, and some of them are wrong. The ones that are right are the ones that say the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and the rest of them are trying to sell you something. They're trying to market you. They're trying to come up with another angle on how to get money out of the Christian audience. We either believe that the gospel gives us the power to live out our justification, to live out this impartation of Christ's righteousness to me, or we start looking for other options. I've looked a lot. A lot of my Christian life was looking for other options. 
because I didn't read Romans 1.16 and take it seriously. I didn't read Romans 1.16 and take it seriously till I was in my early 20s. And I have to say, up until that point was a great deal of struggle. Do I still struggle? Absolutely. And you know it, because I confess it to you. But it's a different kind of thing altogether when you understand the, that, that God's gift of the gospel to believers can empower us not just to be saved, but to live the Christian life. Finally, we don't just get all that, the cure, and it's free, and it's for us, and it empowers us to live out the Christian life, but we can live it out in a way that pleases Him. Look at verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We can live by faith. We can obey God out of Christian love. We can. And I don't know how many of you out there have that little voice inside your head that when I say you can, that voice responds with, no, I can't. I've tried. And I, I've tried. The pastor, you don't know how much I've tried. No, but I know how much I've tried. <laughs> I know how often I've tried to live out the Christian life in my own power from my own self-effort, pulling up my bootstraps till they were all the way up to my neck. I know that feeling. If that's what you're feeling, I felt it. The good news of the gospel isn't just that I don't go to hell when I die. It's that I now am able to live a fruitful life for Jesus Christ and Satan can't stop me. And God doesn't want to stop me. It's his plan for you. Even our struggles with sins of the mind, our idolatries, our sins of the flesh cannot stop Jesus' cure. I have a friend of mine named George. George got very, very aggressive brain cancer uh, probably 15 months ago. And they gave him no time. You know what they did? They went into his brain and they gave his cancer herpes. They went in there and injected and gave him the a variant of the same kind of herpes that causes our cold sores and things like that. And then they filled his system full of antivirals, vir antivirals that we've uh, learned more about through fighting the AIDS virus. And it bought him probably an extra eight, nine, ten months. He's, he's on his deathbed now. He won't make it a lot longer. But he had some great months. He had some great time with his family because of that very weird cure that they did. In this world of sin, even the greatest of cures that we have for aging, 
loss of hair, whatever it is, one day that cure will fail. One day, unless the Lord returns, you're going to die anyhow. You may look a lot better than, 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 than you, the previous generations have, but you're still, you're still not going to make it. But Jesus' cure is something different. It's something that not even death can stop. We know that because Jesus rose from the grave himself, demonstrating that the grave could not stop him. Which means when you breathe your last breath, when you look around and you see through your dimming vision, whatever's going on around you at that time, you can know that the next thing you're going to see is Jesus Christ. And the promises of the gospel made manifest before you. Maybe we might doubt that. Maybe we might imagine that our sins are so bad that Jesus' cure doesn't work. But maybe if he hadn't fulfilled 50 or more prophecies and risen from the grave and given us his inerrant word and given us his Holy Spirit, maybe I would doubt his promises. But he's done all that. And so I believe he's worthy to be trusted. Amen? He's worthy to be trusted. And that means that neither height nor depth nor things present or things past nor angels or demons or any created thing, which includes you, by the way, you're a created thing, and you cannot separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. His redeeming love is more powerful than the grave. It's more powerful than you and I are. And it's the, in that love that we stand healed and ready to serve. Let us pray.